love the idea of the, out of the temple comes life and freshness and the experience of rejuvenation and fruitfulness. I hope that that comes out of this church this morning, that you get to hear about the love your Lord has for you, that you get to experience his call to your lives. Uh, brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, you guys can sing. Wow. It was really, really encouraging to sit on the front row. I don't know if any of you noticed me. I was just gawking at you all as you were singing hymns. Um, it was so encouraging as um, one of your pastors, a few youth guy here, uh, to hear you sing songs. Sing like you mean them. Uh, worship your Lord. I, I have a weird background. I uh, am a pastor's son, went to a school called Covenant College, Kind of like Michael Mendes, if you know Michael Mendes. <laughs> similar, similar background. Um, we had two hymns. One was our fight song, and one was our hall song. Our fight song was um, All for Jesus. So you could imagine a bunch of Presbyterians screaming All for Jesus at the top of their lungs. It is not intimidating. <laughs> uh, and then for our hall, it was um, See Thou My Vision. And uh, we used to scream that at the top of our lungs, too. Again, odd. An odd, odd, odd thing for college students to do. But hearing you guys sing it was beautiful. Way more beautiful than, than my college experience. I had a roommate. Um, his name is Charles Lewis. He is a good friend of mine. And his uh, dad is a pastor in Sacramento at a New City Fellowship church. And he uh, started, he's, he's a preacher. And I was listening to one of his sermons one time, and it, he talked about preaching as being a, a discipline where we speak well of God, and uh, a discipline where the people hear of God and hear him in his beauty and his richness and are drawn to love him more, not because the pastor is so eloquent, but because the one the pastor gets to speak about is so beautiful, is so wonderful, and is so gracious to that it can draw our voices, our songs, it can draw our gifts, it can draw our very lives. I hope as you hear this sermon, you see him in you. That's my prayer. I know one friend who did not, and I will begin with his story, and I'll also end with his story. It's a tragic story, um, and it's a true story. Uh, he was a man that came to my church, and he had a hatred for God, and tragically, I don't blame him, I understand. He grew up in poverty. His father uh, was at some point um, bound to a wheelchair, and this young man had to care for him. His mother went to work, and she got a job and grew in favor with the people who had hired her, and she started doing really, really wonderfully, and they promoted her, and they promoted her, and they promoted her all the way to like a CEO. And so, in theory, this family had been lifted out of poverty through the work of um, a strong, courageous, working mom who could now care for this entire family. Uh, but she was a member of a cult. And this cult um, demanded of her um, everything she knew. And she was so invested and bought into this cult thought that this is what God wanted her to do, that she gave all of her money to this cultic community. 
And as the friend that I know was growing up and living in poverty and not able to do anything but care for his father and seeing his brothers and sisters live in poverty, he grew to hate God. Any God who would rob and be greedy and steal all that someone else had labored for while turning a blind eye to those in need. He uh, became determined never to experience want or poverty again. And so he married a, um, a, a woman who was very dedicated to her work and her studies. She was an occupational therapist, which some of you may think that that's not a, <laughs> a, a, a journey to welfare, but um, or um, money. But she sold um, uh, insurance, and they moved to California, and they bought a little trailer. And his goal was retire at 40 and make millions. Uh, and he did. And he retired at 40, and he moved back to Florida, him and his wife. And they had, des they had determined to cut overheads. They weren't going to have any ex additional expenses. They were going to live very meanly and then enjoy their wealth. Um, when she became a Christian, she started coming to our church. And that's where I met this man who has blessed me in more ways than, than I can name. Um, but his life ends in in suicide when he found that having all that he had wasn't wasn't going to give him the life that he wanted. And horribly, after he died, his mom came to get his money and to give it to that poor. Um, that can be a picture of God. And, and our cynical, um, skeptical, skeptical culture, sometimes that's how we see God. Sometimes that's how we see the church. Um, a, a one who wants just to grab and take and steal from you and turns a blind eye to the injustice of the world. Brothers and sisters, that's not the God of the Bible. And as we're going to talk about tithing and, and giving of our goods to the Lord, I hope that you see this more beautiful picture this beautiful picture that will drive you into into life. A beautiful picture where you see it, and this is the outline of my sermon, so if you like taking notes, you can write these pages in stone. If you don't like taking notes, it won't matter. <laughs> uh, where you see the mercy of God, where you see his invitation to you, and where you experience and see his promise. All right, there's, there's our structure point. Let's read this text. It's Malachi 3. You can turn to page 1490 in your pew Bibles if you would like to. I like to follow the text pretty carefully. But if you don't want to, look at this. Look at this. Here. Let's read. Starting in verse 6. Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed or consumed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? The tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven 
and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field from, will not cast down their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray and dive in. Father, this is your word. Would you do with it what you need to in us, that we would see you, that we would delight in you, and that we would be drawn into this story that you are writing, where we get to play a part, where we get to play a part in receiving your mercy, and playing a part in your mission, and playing a part in experiencing your faithfulness to your promises. In your name I pray, amen. Every book of the Bible is set in a context, a historical context, and a uh, literary context. I'm going to name some of this context for you, and I will not, I will try and keep it very brief. All right, 586, big date. 586, Babylon comes to the people of Israel and crushes it. The city is destroyed. The wonderful, beautiful temple, which is the symbol and the um, space of where God dwells and meets with his people, is destroyed and the survivors of this sacking of this city are taken into slavery. That should be the end of the Israeli God, and it should be the end of Israeli defensive culture. That really should be it. You get sacked, another guy's gods are better than your guy's gods, you might as well abandon those gods and just assimilate into the culture that you're going to. But the craziest historical thing is that when the people of Israel are sent away and put into slavery, and there's only a remnant, barely a remnant left, God protects them. Because God is not the outworking of Israeli culture. He's the creator and the founder of it. He is the one who establishes the Jewish people and gives them um, a picture of who he is. And so Babylon can't destroy him. Persia can't destroy him, the Greeks can't destroy him, the Romans can't destroy him, and the list goes on. We continue today to worship the God whose people were sacked in 586. Isn't that wild? How many other gods from that time are worshipped? I don't even know that I can name them all. I should be able to as part of my education. But in that, regardless, um, that is the power of our Lord. And so as these people to this community, he calls them and brings them back and replants them in the land. And that's where we are in Malachi. They've come back in and they've rebuilt the temple and they have revowed the promises that God had made with the people where he said, I will do this and I have done this for you. And they respond, we will obey your commands. We will live for you. And so the people of Israel are reconstituted into a community where they worship their Lord and they experience his blessings and his richness. Now, the prophets, which is Malachi's the prophets, um, they were uh, cultural analysts, so to speak. They studied what the culture was saying. They engaged the culture. I read a book by uh, John Stott called Two Worlds, In Between Two Worlds, and it was a book about preaching. And he said that when your preachers preach, they should have the newspaper in one hand and the word of God in the other and be comparing the two to speak to the times. And Malachi is speaking to the people of his time. And he's 
as the word that he's holding in his hand is the Deuteronomical code, which is the code of the people of Israel, the cultural distinction, the callings that those people have vowed that they will continue as God protects them and loves them. And so he's got that in his left hand, and he's looking around at um, his fellow Israelites from his right hand, from his right side, <laughs> right? The word of God, uh, the, the, um, the newspaper on his left, the word of God on his right. And he's engaging and studying and letting the people know what God has to say. And in so doing, he is um, inspirationally charged with a prophecy. That's what prophecy is. It's when um, man speaks the words of God. And it's often used the word of God itself in that prophetic um, discussion, reciting, <laughs> whatever. You know what I'm trying to say, <laughs> I hope. If you don't, I'm sorry. This could be a long sermon. Um, uh, so, what Malachi does with this text, in this book, is he sets up a court case, and he brings five disputations, or six disputations, he says, and, and the Lord is kind of the um, defendant. The people say, hey, where are you? Why have you not done this? And the Lord says, I have done this. And then he says, why have you done this? And they say, no, we haven't done that. And he says, yes, you have. And then he proves that, he ha that they have. Right? That is the rhythm of Malachi. And if you go back and read through this book, you'll see that. He says something, they say something through this time. Right? Keith has already looked at two of these. Um, worship. Their worship has become deadened. They don't worship the Lord with all their heart. And his, the Lord says, I have loved you. You have not loved me. I have cared for you. You have not worshipped me. I have been faithful to you, but you have not even been faithful to your own spouse. You've disregarded her and gone towards others. You've treated me, my covenant, and the people you are called to love with disdain. What are you doing? And then here, he gets to the tithes and their offerings. He says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefather, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will turn to you. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. In this just first three verses, you see the mercy of God towards a people who are so arrogant. So arrogant. How do you see the mercy of God to the people who are arrogant? Well, have you ever been in a relationship with somebody who um, has something against you but will never tell you? And then they are angry with you, but they never really tell you why? And you're like, hey, dude, can you just tell me what I did so we could move forward? And he's like, no, I need you actually to figure it out. Until you can figure it out, we're not going to be okay. All right? Um, and, and then you feel the, it's almost like the daily pain of like, what did I do wrong? Where did I mess up? That is not your God. That is not your God. He is going to tell you what is good. He is going to call you back to himself. And that is what the prophets do. Brothers and sisters, the conviction that we feel 
um, the guilt that we feel over, the sin, of, over our sin, the confrontation that we experience with God, is God's mercy to you? In Romans 2, it says again and again, the people, the, um, Paul says, to those who he does not care for, he lets them over. He hands them over to their own sinfulness. He lets them go and destroy themselves. He gives them over to their own unrighteousness. That's the theme of Romans 2. But to those he loves, he comes to them and says, guys, wake up. Look at what I have against you. Turn to me and I will return to you. How do they need to turn? They need to stop robbing. Have you ever been robbed? I just want you to, like, to check in with the emotions of the text. I love checking in with the emotions of the text. I'm an emotive dude, if you couldn't tell. Um, I, I'm all about the emotions of the text. I used to work at this warehouse um, where I would get tips for delivering furniture and carry heavy furniture around. And uh, one day I got a $40 tip, and I felt great about it. And I went home, and I uh, was going to go to the gym, and I'm genuinely or generally a foolishly trusting person. And so I don't lock my locker at my gym. I still don't, if any of you want to follow me there someday. Um, I now keep my wallet with me, but then I didn't. I put my wallet in the gym, and I had this, I had 40 bucks in the gym. And I got back after my workout and uh, put on my clothes, didn't check to make sure my wallet was there, got to my car, thought, oh, I better check this, and all of my cash was gone. And it was only 40 bucks. So it's not like I can go call the police. <laughs> no one... No justice is coming for the guy that loses 40 bucks. In fact, they'd probably just be like, dude, lo what's your locker? What are you doing? And that'd be legitimate. Um, but it wasn't just a lack of fairness or I lost $40. I felt violated. They owe me 40 bucks. I felt like someone had taken my stuff, gone through it, and took whatever they wanted. They had no, they had no right to it. This was wrong. This was unjust. And they don't just need to make restitution. They need to be caught and punished, and justice must happen. Do you know that feeling? That feeling when someone is taken from you. I had this other guy like um, try and steal my car. Again, I left my car unlocked. I left the gate unlocked. I, I made every mistake. And the guy came in and, and tried to rip open my um, steering column and, and drive off with my car. I remember walking out to my car and, and, and noticing that the radio was on and thinking, oh, that's weird. <laughs> Then I sat in my car and noticed that the steering column had been ripped out. And again, oh, someone was in the seat. Someone I didn't invite in. Someone who shouldn't have been there. They stole from me. They tried to steal from me. Why would you do that to me? Why would you do that to anybody? You know that, you know that feeling? That nastiness you feel. That someone's taken from you. Think about doing that to a president. Think about doing that to someone who's more powerful than me, someone who matters, someone who's going to make a, who, who the police are actually going to go after. You wouldn't do that. That's madness. Secret service is coming. And the Lord says, look at what you do to me. You rob me of what I've given you. You've robbed me, and I'm God. Would a man rob God? What does it mean to rob God, guys? It means to view him with such disdain, to see him as so petty, 
to see him as weaker than I am. He doesn't care about justice. He doesn't care about anything. We can do whatever we want. It's the height of arrogance. It is the height of disbelief. It is a disregard for who he is and what he has done. And you know what? He can take whatever gift I'm willing to give him, and he better darn right accept it, because that's my money. I'm not giving him a dime. Or only that dime. Who is he? What kind of arrogance? Dan Allender talks about er the arrogant mind and the arrogant heart as being one who views um, his, his power, his wealth, his or hers, um, uh, his gifts, his blessings, all that he has as emanating from his own strength, as emanating from his own determination and grit. I am a self-made man or woman. I'm strong. I can do it. God does nothing for me. And if I want to give him stuff, cool. There's my, there's my uh, little gift for him. It's me as the commander of my destiny. That's what a slave people who had just been sacked and sent to Babylon and returned by the love and the kindness of God are saying of their leader. You are nothing. You're minimal. Not only that, but they defend themselves. And Calvin has a cow about this. John Calvin, he's from um, a long time ago. <laughs> Forgot how long ago he was. Um, he, uh, he says, is the arrogance not only reveals itself in the fact that they are robbing God of his tithes, they're, taking, they're not appropriating the tithe, but also um, when he says, you rob me, they're like, how? Give me a break, dude. Ever, ever catch somebody, catch somebody red-handed who then treats you like you're an idiot? Dude, this was actually mine all along. Dude, you're so wrong. I had one guy cuss me out for not giving him something. And I knew he was lying to me. Oh, man. You guys know what it, mean, what it feels like to be so disrespected? To just be treated as if you were light? Just be treated as if you're something small? be treated as if you don't matter, spit on, look down on. I know you have. I have. You can picture the people who have done it to you. How would you feel about those people? You know how God feels about them? He invites them back. Return to me, and I will turn to you. Come back. Come back. I love you. I'm telling you what you have done wrong. Come back and be with me. I want to be with you. He says his long-suffering is the only reason why these people are even still existing. He says from your earliest days, you as your, as your oldest, oldest fathers did the same thing. And I've suffered long with them because I love you. I care for you. Do you see the mercy of a God who has been so despised, so spit upon, so treated illy, by his people, and yet his face was always towards them. In Isaiah, there's a scene where he says to the people, guys, I'm at the door holding my hands out to you. Please open it. I'm right here. I'm right here. That's our God of mercy. He's merciful. He invites us back in. So what's so important about a tithe? Besides the fact that God has commanded it and that the people have vowed to give it, which they do in Nehemiah. 
Why does it matter? Well, a tithe is a tenth um, of all of the produce, of all of the goods that the people receive in the year. All right, and God has commanded that these tithes be brought forth. And I'm going to get a little bit technical here, and I know I've already kept you for a while, so we're going to move very quickly. <laughs> I hope. Um, we're, I'm going to try. Uh, so the tithe um, was this tenth of their produce. When God brought these people to the promised land, he gives them all of it. And he divides it amongst 11 tribes of Israel. How many tribes of Israel are there? There are 12, Sam. <laughs> my hand covered my mic. There are only 12, Sam. There's, there are 12. So what happens to the, the, the last 12? Those people are not given any land. Why not? They're the, the people of Levi. And they're called to be devoted to the temple and the work of Yahweh. They work in the temple. They're the priests. They make sure that the temple is clean, that there are singers there, that there are, um, the janitorial staff is active. They make sure that the offerings are happening, that the uh, holy days are being kept. They're teaching the people of God. The Levites are called to not have land so that they can completely commit all of their lives to the Lord. And the Lord really cares about those Levites. I'm going to make a parallel. That's not exactly one for one. Um, we are in a covenant. We are in a, um, a seminary town. If you're here to study, to become a pastor, the Lord really loves you. And he's going to make sure that you're provided for. Even if it's barely. <laughs> he's made very little money for a long time. Lord provided for him and cared for him. He cares for me too, and he cares for Greg. He is committed to your well-being, pastors. He really is. He is committed to all of your well-being, not just pastors. We're not putting, not putting them on a pedestal. But the Lord is committed to his workers of his temple. All right? So this tithe would come in and would supply the needs of the Levites, supply the needs of those who have nothing. That we are completely dependent on you. <laughs> Your tithes pay for my kids' clothes. Your gifts pay for my kids' food. If you stop caring about the Lord, I'm toast. Or at least I gotta find a different job. Right? When the tithe comes in, it is to provide for those who are to teach, to instruct, and provide um, for, for the people of Yahweh in leading them in worship. That's the beauty of the tithe, but the tithe is so much more. And every third year, that tithe was taken and brought into the church or into the temple and given to all of the poor and the needy, the widow, and the um, alien. The tithe is not just God being God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God, this whole world is the Lord's. All that you have is his gift to you. The tithe in the Old Testament covenant was the command of the people to care for those around them. It's his welfare program. I want you to care for the priests. I want you to care for the poor and for the needy and for those who are without, those who don't have land, those who have to sell off their land. That's who this tithe goes out for. In verse... Um, 10, like I, I read this and it became so beautiful to me, and I hope it becomes beautiful to you. Verse 10, 
Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. When there is food in the house of the Lord, blessing and life flow into the community all around us. That's what this is all about. This isn't about God wanting to be greedy and wanting your money, wanting to use you. You give to God so he can give to you and give to you lavishly so that the poor and the needy receive, so that the priests are cared for in their work. And Nehemiah, there's a scene where like the people have ceased to give. And so the house of God is abandoned. The singers can't continue singing. The, the priests can't continue working um, on, on the Sabbath day. They have to all run to fields and find money sell themselves into slavery. And Nehemiah's like, what the heck, guys? Don't you care about your Lord? Look at what is happening. The widows and the orphans are, are suffering. They're not being cared for. They're not being provided for. This is what happens when the people of God cease to care about the Lord. And that's why I call it a great invitation. To participate in the tithes and the offerings in the Old Testament community was to say, God, your cares are my cares too. And I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to care for your people. Check out verse um, 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. Why delightful? Isn't that a wonderful word? I love that word, delightful. I like delighting in my kids. It's a, I, 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 I picture like a father who just enjoys or mother who just enjoys their kids. The land is going to be delightful, beautiful. Why? Because God is, the, the, everyone is cared for in this land. God is actively providing for all of his people, through his people actively providing for all of his people. Does that make sense? This is a land of justice, of prosperity, of kindness, of brotherly love. The Lord has two commands. Love me with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you love me, you will love him. If you love me, you will love her. Let's do this as a community. The tithe is not so that my friend would suffer in poverty and watch his dad die. The tithe is to care for the people. What a greedy God. That's why I had um, Elizabeth read that long, lengthy passage from Ezekiel. When the storehouses of the Lord are filled with food, blessing and life and healing flows to the community. It's like a river or a trickle at first and gets deeper and deeper as the people continue. And then trees start coming up all around it and people start fishing and eating great fish and they're like, this fish is amazing. And then they catch the, the, the trees are having fruit every month. Every month? What? Every month? Yes, because the waters and the freshness of our Lord fills the earth. Through his tithes. Guys, you get to be a part of that. That's his invitation to you. You want to be about what the Lord is about? He wants you to. And so it's not just giving him something so we can eat. It's putting yourself in his mission, in his story, in his life. Finally, there's a promise. This promise 
is a promise of blessing. The Lord says in um, uh, the latter half of verse 10, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Test me. Come test me. Watch me work. Give to me and watch me give to you. Now, uh, Elizabeth Axemeyer is a commentary writer, and she names this Florida man story. And hers are from, like, the 80s. So <laughs> this has been a problem for people like me who grew up in Florida for a long time, apparently. Um, <laughs> Aaron's like, let's go, Florida. <laughs> um, she she uh, says there's this guy who was suing his pastor because his pastor promised them if he dies, uh, he would reap an uh, incredible harvest, and he hasn't reaped that harvest. He says, what, is, what the heck, pastor? You told me I would be rich, and I have not received those blessings. I'm suing you for false advertising. Uh, that's what she said. I don't know that it's real, but I have no reason not to trust her. <laughs> she put it in writing. Um, what is being said here is not purely, if you tithe, you will be wealthy beyond imagine in the way that our world talks about. I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that God is a cosmic genie who if you, if you grant him something, he'll grant it right back to you. He's not that. This is not a promise for your, you don't, you don't buy into the Lord so you will be, um, this, is, this is a crude example. You don't buy into the Lord so you'll have 72 virgins and get to do whatever you want one day, right? You don't buy in so that you get just to, to be the best version of this world that you can find. As you buy in, he does open those floodgates of blessing on you. He does pour them out. But it looks like a harvest of righteousness. Um, Joyce Baldwin says that uh, the reminder that the nations will call these people blessed is not just because they have so much money now, but it's because their whole lives have been changed into a focus on the Lord, and it's a righteous, a righteous nation. Don't get me wrong, the Lord will provide. He will care for you. You will not be in want. But the harvest you will reap is a harvest of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 9 talks about it. That we will be rich with the righteousness of God. And we will shine. And the nations will see it and they will be like, holy smokes, put me on board for that. That's beautiful. That's justice in motion. That's kindness and richness. Whatever God you serve is the God I want to serve. That's the very blessing from Genesis 12. Where God says, Abraham, I will make you blessed, um, and uh, uh, will make you blessed, and then and you will bless the nations. It's coming to fruition as they give the tithe. Now, um, how does this apply to us? How does this all apply to us? Because the New Testament has no tithing regulations. The people of God, the New Testament people, are not called to give a tithe. Surprisingly. I was surprised. <laughs> this is an Old Testament covenant um, that Christ has fulfilled. 
So what does it look like for us? Brothers and sisters, do you follow a Savior who when you were filthy in sin gave up everything, poured out his ta- himself of all of his glory, of all of his wealth, of all of his richness, which he had a right to, and put it aside for you and came and found you. It's so much more meaningful than what the prophet says, though it's on par with it. As opposed to the Lord saying, hey, come back to me. Jesus actually goes to you. Pours himself of his wealth for you that in his poverty, Paul says, you would become rich. By his poverty, you become rich. We follow a Lord who sees you as the one who's in need and gives everything up for you. And we get to do that for Whenever there's renewal, there's a renewal in giving. There's a renewal in generosity. And the people come saying, Lord, your ways are magnificent and I want to be like you. God writes a story and invites us to participate. He writes a story and brings us into it. One of our elders um, says this beautifully. He says, this isn't my house, it's God's house. And I love it. I love it. He's speaking of his own personal house, and he uses it to care for it. He and she, husband and wife combo, they use it to care for others. They've housed some of our pastors. They've housed some of many of us. That's what we're called to be. Not a community that says, what's my 10% as my um, church membership fee? But I have a God who so richly and generously blessed me that I get to Brothers and sisters, if you have only 10% to give to your Lord today, if you have only 10% to give to your Lord, and you said, Father, I wish I could give more, this is all I got. He does not say, holy smokes, you nasty person, what are you doing? If you have 3%, then that's all you have. Remember the, the widow who has two copper coins, and Jesus looks at her and says, this is more than any of the others have given today. This the, 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 the three fish and the two loaves, whatever you have, there's not a limit or a minimum to giving. And there certainly is no maximum because the Lord has given all to us and says, come follow me. Come be like me. Brothers and sisters, we're about to take part in communion. <laughs> Very soon. <laughs> I really got to wrap this sermon up. You have, bared, you have been with me. Um, We're about to take part in communion where we get to taste and see the goodness of our Lord to you. The song that we often sing is, may the bread on our tongue leave a trail um, to bring the hungry back to the place where we are from. I pray that as you experience this giving that the Lord has given to you, you will then turn and seek to give as he has given to you. I'm going to finish this story because I told you about it and I don't want to leave you hanging. The man who committed suicide. His wife, like I said, became a Christian. And she fought his mom so that his mom wouldn't take the money to give it to her Tulsa community. Um, That woman paid $17,000 a year for me to go to Calvary College. She paid $6,000 a year for me to get an undergrad at um, um, a high school education. 
And then she supported me with $1,000 a year, every year of my seminary career. She started a fund for the education of the people at my church so that all could receive, because Florida's educational system is pretty bad. It's really, really lowly. Um, so that people could go to private schools and get a better education. She has poured out the money that she has, that she's been given in kindness, not to a cultic community, not so that my dad can, her pastor, can get like, can eat all of it. My dad gets, he's a pastor of a 30-person church. He's paid nothing. <laughs> but she pours out his, her kindness on his people, and Pam Hansen is the reason I am here in this pulpit today. Through the generosity of the people of God, that his people are blessed. And I will forever sing the praises. My brothers joke with me that I have Pam Hansen's um, name tattooed on my rear end. And goodness gracious, maybe I should. <laughs> because that's what she's done for me. She's poured out to me. We all have the name of our Father in heaven, our Savior, stamped on our foreheads. That's not a sign of um, shame. That's a sign of richness. Jesus' name. Let's live in that richness, brothers and sisters. Let's pray.